Welcome to Owl Have You Know, a podcast from Rice Business. This episode is part of our Pivot series, where guests share stories of transformation in their lives and careers. And I don't know, man, it's like as soon as I got off that plane, it was like, man, I like it here. On today's episode of I'll Have You Know, I'm joined by Takia Green, recent graduate of the full-time MBA program at Rice. Takia shares her incredible journey from the chemical engineering lecture halls of a top-ranked program to the control rooms of world-scale chemical manufacturing facilities, and from NRG Stadium cheering for the Houston Texans to now an investment banking career focused on clean energy. Takia brought her energy and passion to Rice Business as a JSA rep, admissions ambassador, sponsors chair for the Women in Leadership Conference Committee, Finance Association Social Chair, and the CMO of the MA Wright Fund. Try and keep up as we unpack the experiences and perspectives that drive one of Rice Business's newest graduates. Takia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I'm really excited about our conversation today. There's lots of different things that we're going to talk about. I kind of wanted to just start from the beginning. Born and raised in Chicago, You went and got a chemical engineering degree at University of Illinois. Why chemical engineering? What kind of led you towards that undergraduate? Believe it or not, it was it was literally my parents without them knowing. I always wanted to be like going through school. I was like, oh, I came home one day and I was like, I think I want to be like a high school math teacher. And my mom's like, absolutely not. You're not going to make any money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she was like, pick something else. Like I kid you know, it was like junior year of high school. It's like that time to start like thinking about your apps. She was like, pick something else. So I was like, I'm good at math. I like chemistry, chemical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I feel like I had the exact same experience. I think uh, your mom and, and my dad would have a, a funny conversation about it because I wanted to be a chef. And my dad said, go do something that doesn't result in you living in my basement. And chemical engineering, it was. That's fantastic. (laughs) You went and got a chemical engineering degree. You started your career post-graduation at Dow Chemical. You spent a number of years with Dow. Dow obviously headquartered there in uh, in Midland, Michigan, within striking distance of, of Chicago. I started my career at Dow as well. What drew you to the chemicals manufacturing world? Honestly... It was just the luck of the draw. I just think that was divine intervention. When I picked chemical engineering, like, I did not know what that was. There's so many realms of it that I probably still to this day just still do not know. And so the great thing about going to University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana is, like, it's a top engineering institution, kind of like how Rice is a prestigious institution. University of Illinois Engineering, it was, like, top five at that moment when I went. So when it came time to look for jobs, it was literally, we probably had like four career fairs just dedicated to us where we had hundreds of companies just there. And honestly, I just went to everyone that said they hired chemical engineers. (laughs) I just went to everyone because I just wanted a job. And I just, I first started at Lionel Bussell was the first one. And so like the next, when it came time with my experience, I really liked what I did. So I just went to Dow, (laughs) you know, amongst others. I had other offers, of course, but um, I ended up doing Dow because I wanted to live in Houston. Like I just, Houston has always been a city that out of all the cities I ever went to, I just felt like I was supposed to be here. It's weird. 
No, I love that. And I want to dig into that a little bit, but I, I do want to ask one of the challenges for women in STEM careers. What, did you feel like there were any barriers or challenges along the way as you were pursuing that degree and, and pursuing a career in that space? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's so hard being like in the top quartile of like your race or your sex, like where you see mostly black people or you'll see them a lot as like nurses or like working at the grocery store, you're kind of like blue collar jobs. And then like for women, you know, you'll say, oh, teacher or secretary. And so to be at the top for both at the time as a kid, you don't really realize like why you feel like you're struggling a little more than you think others. And it's even harder because I don't think people understand that it's easier for you to like voice your opinion with someone if there's something that you can physically see you connect on. It was hard for me to just voice like, I don't understand this concept or hard for me to voice like that didn't make me feel good the way you said that to me. I had barriers on both ends, both on my race and my sex. And it played out a lot because I was a production engineer. So it's not like your other engineering jobs where you might be designing equipment and you're sitting, you know, in a big commercial building on your computer programs. Like I'm working with what people would call your behind the woods, the blue collar type of America that maybe your typical person who might have lived in the city that you've never seen. You've seen the blue collar in the city, but the blue collar in like rural areas are vastly <laughs> different. And that's the world I was plunged in. It's really interesting. I grew up in a small paper mill town and chemical engineering was you were either a lumberjack or you worked in the mill. And so chemical engineering, very similar, like didn't know what it was. I kind of discovered that from my perspective, it was like glorified plumbing, you know, going out in a plant and <laughs> you're uh, counting elbows and feet of pipe and, you know, all these things. And, and you're right, the workforce that's making that happen in a manufacturing facility it's a fascinating group of people that do that that kind of work and a, and a production engineer i mean maybe just tell the audience or you know just what is kind of like a day in the life of a production engineer you know you're out in a in a manufacturing facility but what are some of the outcomes that you're trying to drive from that seat yeah so a production engineer you want to think like for an example let's say i'm a plant and all i produce is tires like i produce this call it rubber i produce rubber so you'll have a meeting with your commercial team and they're going to say, hey, for this month, this is how much rubber you have to produce. You go back to your team. You go on our equipment. You know, everything's automated in a chemical plant. So if I'm making rubber, I got to go look at my plant on the schematics and say, how much do I have to make per day to make my commercial commitment? I go do that. Relay that to my team, my operators who operate the plant. So, hey, we got a plan. Let's uh, make sure we uh, hit these goals for the month. Well, let's just say halfway through a pump breaks. Now I'm hauling ass <laughs> trying to get a pump back online because if I don't, I don't make my commitment. So a production engineer is your basically your middleman between a company who wants to sell products and the people able to make it. I'm the middle person to make it happen. So not only do I have to speak in a language that is smart enough so that my research and development folks can understand what I'm talking about 
to still be able to filter it to my operators, who some of them don't even have a, a college degree. <laughs> I can't talk about thermodynamics with someone who doesn't have a college degree. But also I got to communicate why all these theoretical concepts and stuff, why they impact my plant to the commercial team. <laughs> Business folks don't know nothing about thermodynamics, you know? So it's kind of <laughs> like that I'm the center nucleus of getting a product out the door into a customer's hands. That's a wild environment. I mean, it's uh, like you're saying, fast paced, like there's so many things that are out of control. I guess from just like a, an advice standpoint, things that you learned, like what do you tell underrepresented female engineers that are out there? Like what are some of the skills that, that you've learned that you felt helped make that environment uh, effective for you? Man, it took some time. <laughs> I think what's different for me is that it wasn't until I started working. It, this is going to sound so stupid. I didn't know until I started working that like people knew I was black. Like when you're a kid, right? Like your whole time, like, you know, you look different, but it like, it doesn't like really hit you. It wasn't until it was my first internship in 2011 with Lionel Bissell. It was the summer. You know, summer's hot, operating a ethylene cracker, it's hot. So the company sponsored watermelon for the day. Like they were like just for a snack because it was so hot because of heat stress. And this older man, he was like, oh, Takiya, come on in. Here's some watermelon, blah, 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 blah. I'm thinking nothing of it, like nothing of it. Like I'm like, he asked me if I want watermelon. There's watermelon here. Everybody's eating watermelon. <laughs> it's a thing. Next thing you know. Literally, like it, this happened on a Wednesday. That Friday, I got called into the HR office of that building. And the woman started asking me questions about what the guy was saying to me. And this is going to sound stupid again. At this point, I'm thinking, ew, is she asking if this dude is hitting on me? He was not hitting on me. That was my first initial thought. I'm like, no, because the guy was so awesome. He was helping me, whatever. Next thing you know, she asked me, questions about race. Like, did I feel like he was being racist? And I said, I'm 19 years old when this happens to me. I'm 19. And I'm like, uh, no, like it, it, I was shocked. And then it was in that moment. I was like, like, shit, my secret's out. I'm black. <laughs> That's what it like came off. And like, honestly, like, for every underrepresented person, and this can go for anyone, if you're just going into an environment where you just, you know, some things you just didn't really think about because it's just, you're just novice to it, just know that you're going to go through them, but you got to allow yourself to go through them so you're able to identify those things as you move forward. And once you identify what those things are and you get into like places of leadership, that's when you can take that stuff back. That's when you can start openly speaking. So it's still going to happen. But I would just say, just find your allies. Like for me, if I did not have people that I could talk to, I would not have been there. And usually when people who are women or like underrepresented minorities, if they leave a place, more than likely it's because they did not have someone there, which should speak volumes to anyone. Like the fact of someone being there. That is like my advice. Go through it, but have someone that you can trust that you can go through it with so you can allow yourself to grow because you need to grow. 
That's great perspective. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to ask you, it kind of said that you like wanted to get to Texas in taking a, a job in the, the petrochemical belt down here. Why Texas? And ultimately, you know, I want to ask as well, like why a, a full-time MBA at Rice? What drew you to the third coast here? Yeah, <laughs> I love that. The third coast. Like I said, I was at, at this time when I worked for Lionel Basel, I was working in a plant in Morris, Illinois. I did two plants, but the first one I went to was Morris, Illinois. And there was this thing where they would ship all the interns to Channel View, which is on the east of Houston, right? They would ship you to Channel View for a week because they want you to go to Lyondell's big, you know, manufacturing land. And I don't know, man. It's like as soon as I got off that plane, it was like, man, I like it here. Like, first it was like, oh, they're not on horses. Like, like they say, right? Like, <laughs> it's a little more industrialized. And then from Chicago, especially from like where I'm from, where my family's from, People still thought like Texas, like back in the day, 1865 Texas, like when we hear Texas, we, that's what we think. So coming down here, I was like, oh, it's normal. Like, <laughs> no, but it's <laughs> like, I felt this connection with the city. And like I said, I just, when things just tingle, it just felt right. Like I just felt like this gravitational pull, like. I'm supposed to And be. it wasn't the humidity? It was No, it definitely <laughs> wasn't because my hair literally puffed up. I was like, wow, I look like Mufasa <laughs> at this point. But what's crazy is, is I tried to leave Texas. And this is why I feel like, again, like there's something that keeps pulling me here to Houston. And I there's some reason. I don't know what it is. But I tried to leave Texas. Like when I was first applying to get my MBA, I always wanted to go to Stern in New York. And that was more so driven like... It's your typical story for a young, adventurous female, right? Like you're 26, 27, the dude you thought you were going to marry, you don't marry, and you just want to like start over. So I wanted to have my like, what's her name from Sex in the City? Carrie, whatever her name is. Carrie. I wanted to have my moment. You know, I was like, I'm going to go to New York, live this life, change everything. But then <laughs> I met a Houstonian boy. <laughs> <laughs> who, I don't have my ring on my finger right now, but who just proposed to me two months ago, my now fiance, but I met him and it changed a lot. And I was like, I can do what I want to do here in Houston. So rice became that choice, which ultimately, again, was the right choice because I don't think I could have accomplished as much as I did at rice at a stern. I just think it's two completely different things. And I think it happened for a reason. Some people don't believe in like divine intervention, but some people, you know, you know when things are like tingling, like there's something happening. And that's kind of what's been, <laughs> been in my head, been happening in my life, clearly, <laughs> since I'm still here. I love that. <laughs> kind of beyond coincidence yeah. in that sense. I want to talk a bit more about your rice experience, but I, I do want to ask, because I think this is amazing. You're a production engineer, and then you decide to audition for the Houston Texans cheerleading squad. I'm sure you get asked about this a lot, but I'm sure it wasn't like just a, an overnight decision. But can you just share a little? I mean, I I played some sports in school and stuff or whatever, but like I had just like abandoned all hope for doing anything athletic, like after graduating, like what was the thought process and the experience of working in the Texans organization as a cheerleader? <laughs> yeah, man. Every time I try to erase this thing about myself, it just follows me. <laughs> but no, seriously, out of everything that has ever happened in my life, 
being a Texans cheerleader taught me so many valuable lessons that I like carry throughout my career. It's crazy. Like I've learned more from that environment than I've ever had in my entire life. And I think it's mainly because everything's abstract, right? Like when you see a girl dance, everybody has their own tastes. You might like that her hair is black and she might like that she could do a split and he might, you know, when everything is so perceptive, like I tell people there now there's some downsides, right? Like I was 14% body fat when I was a cheerleader. And when I tell you I was that fit and still felt fat every day, like it's crazy. Like the tricks your mind goes to when you're in those realms. However, like working for that organization, I had such a great time. Like I met Bob McNair before he died a sweet man, like a sweet man, even the late Jamie Roots, the business president that just died. I met him a couple times, such a great guy. That organization is ran like a family. And like, I really, really say that like, you could feel like the Texas, you know, hospitality when you worked for them. So like to, you know, see Bob pass, that was sad. And, you know, with, with Jamie passing, that was sad to see. But it was just such a beautiful experience. I, I just can't speak more highly of it. I think it follows you because it's such a unique experience. And I think, you know, someone born and raised in Chicago and like falling in love with Texas and then to just like be a, a, a member of the Texans family, as you're describing, it just seems like such a, a unique experience. How did being a Texans cheerleader like hit your radar? Yeah. So um, I have to caveat, I never cheerleaded in my life. I was never a dancer. My whole life, I played sports. Like I was like played basketball for twelve years. I'm a state qualifying tennis player from high school. Like I've done other sports, never this. So when I moved to Houston, the typical I need to get fit. So I was looking for gyms, and I came across this gym here in Houston, Interme Studios, and it's like a female fun fitness gym. Now it's located in Third Ward. The owner, I know the owner there now. They just had like these fun dance classes. So I just went to a fun dance class just to like work out. And one of the instructors, she was an ex-Rockets, Texans, and at that time, Houston Dynamo when they had girls. She did all the cheerleading for them. And she was like, you should really like go out for the Texans. And I laughed. And I said, one, my body type, I can't get Megan Fox skinny. And two, I'm not blonde. <laughs> that's like what I told her. Cause you know, when I was growing up, that's what the cheerleaders looked like. They literally looked like Adriana Lima. And I was like, man, I'm not eating three Cheerios in a day. Like I like to eat. So, <laughs> so she was like, just do it. Like she was like, just, just audition, just audition. So I go and I audition. This was the Super Bowl year, the year that the, the Super Bowl was in Houston. And I went and I auditioned, didn't make, I didn't get past second round, but I just was like, Hey, I'm here, bro. Preparing for that. That's a whole different type of experience, man. A whole different yeah. type. But no, I believe it. So that following after I did it, I was like, Oh, like, all right, I think I could do this. So I started to train after I would get off work at Dow at like six or whatever. I'd be in dance classes. I kid you not from like seven to sometimes midnight. And I was just dancing, like literally 20 hours a week, I was dancing, dancing, working out, getting fit. So when the next year rolled around, I was like, all right, I'm in here. Like, this is the time. 
I'm serious because I got that that competition. I get eliminated in the exact same round as the first year, and I'm pissed. First of all, if I tell my friend, let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings because I haven't eaten. I haven't eaten nothing good. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there like just I'm pissed because I'm like, I did this. I did that. I did that. Blah, blah. And I was like, man, forget this. Because everyone kept telling me with my body type, because I was so muscular looking that they were like, you should be a Rockets girl. Like, you're not the Texans type of cheerleader. You're a Rockets girl. So I was like, fine. Next year, I'll go out for the Rockets. So that's what I went back to my training. So now I'm going even harder. Like now at this point, there was some nights I was dancing to like 1 a.m. Like it it was like going back on it. I was a nutcase, but I wanted it so bad. So here I am dancing almost 30 hours a week. And I was like, okay, if I got to do this Rockets audition, let me just do this Texans audition. Let me just do it to practice. So when I get to the real thing, like I'm cool. But in that, because I was like throwing it off, like, oh, this ain't nothing. I was like, I'm gonna just dance like how I normally dance. Like, usually when I would go to a Texans audition, I try to look like what the team looked like. Like, this is how they dance, so I'm gonna dance that way. This time I was like, well, they about to get raw tequila. And that's what I did. <laughs> and uh, when I tell you after I made that team, when I had a one-on-one with my coach, she sat me down. It was Coach Alto, and she said, I picked you because you ain't look like nobody else. <laughs> That's awesome. And it was Holy in that God. moment. And I take this everywhere in my life. Your biggest competitive advantage is your authentic self. Nobody can be you. That is your superpower. And that's like how I live my life. Like even to this day, like it's like, if you like Takia, you'll like her. If you don't, I'm just not your flavor. And that's okay. Takia, that's amazing. And I, I, I think that's just, just a fantastic philosophy that's so hard for people to get to is that that self-discovery and that just courage to be you in so many unique different circumstances. And I guess as you've retired from cheerleading and now moved on to a different part of your career, you said it's one of the, like, the most educational experiences. You've learned so much from that. Are, what are some of the things that you take from that experience? I mean, you're touching on kind of just this authenticity, just embracing yourself. Are there any other things that you take from that experience that you you carry with you? Yeah. You can only control the things that you can control. <laughs> That's one. Two is there's no such thing as luck, man. It's when preparation meets opportunity. And three, like I said, your biggest competitive advantage is your authentic self. When I tell you, like, I applied for business schools before. Like, while I was auditioning for the Texans, like, I applied. And I got rejected. I remember I applied to Fuqua at Duke. I applied to, like, USC, UCLA, and got rejected by everyone. Everyone, man. Like, everyone. And that second time around, like, when I was doing my applications, Again, it was like what I felt in my heart, like what I really wanted to do, how I really wanted to portray me. Because a lot of the times on your NBA apps, you just be saying all this foo-foo fairy tale. You want to save the world. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everyone's going to drink water. It's going to be water everywhere, you know. (laughs) But this time it was like I was very realistic, but I was also me. 
and I got into every school I applied to. And that's why I'll, I just, I really firmly believe like your biggest competitive advantage is, is your authentic self because people are not okay with being themselves. Like I'm telling you, it's, it's such a freeing experience. And that's why, like for an example, not trying to equate them at all, but like when people who might identify as gay, like how much they change, like when they are able to say like, this is me, it's such a freeing experience and not everyone gets to experience it because people are really scared to be themselves because they are afraid of whatever consequences they've built up in their head. And so I always, that is my motto, like, just be yourself. You're enough. You're enough. You know? I love that. I mean, that's just such fantastic perspective and advice. And like you're saying, there's so many social constructs and things that are kind of put in place that people feel like they need to conform or be a certain way or whatever it might be to kind of be accepted. And, and you do that over time and that can create just so many self-inflicted barriers. Love that you're a living example of that. And thank you for sharing those experiences because I just think they're so unique and important in terms of what people can learn from. And so I want to talk about your rice experience. Obviously, we're on the I'll Have You Know podcast. Just want to talk about your experience and like what stands out to you of having gone through the rice program and what are some of the, you know, just experiences or favorite stories or kind of impacts. We'd just love to hear about kind of your time at rice. I had such a great time at rice. And I think. It's because I really wanted my experience to really transform me. And I was really able to unlock like my, when I say my fullest potential, that sounds so cliche, but I really mean it. Like I wanted to see how much I could do. I've always been like a multitasker, like doing multiple things at one time, always been able to do it. But I wanted to see like, what's my barrier? Like, where am I stretched? And I did so much. Sometimes I think too much. <laughs> but I will say one of my like favorite like moments is, and it's just fresh off my mind, is when I won the MA Wright Award for my class. It's an award where the class actually nominates and picks who they think made like the best contributions to our class in our MBA experience. And I won that award. It's a peer, an award from your peers. Yeah, it's an award from your peers. And when you win at investiture, because we don't call it graduation Mm -hmm. at Rice, it's investiture. (laughs) Um, At the investiture, I gave a speech after I won the award. And in my speech, Mm -hmm. I was very, again, myself. (laughs) And I talked (laughs) about some of the experiences that I felt. I went to Rice right after George Floyd got shot. So I want, I want to like lay that foundation. So at that moment, there was so much turmoil going on in the world. You know what I mean? Like that was like the last straw that sent Black Lives Matter all around the world. And so, you know, in school, we had, I want to say the largest amount of Black people at, at Rice in the, full, in the full-time MBA program. We had the largest number ever. Just black women alone, you probably only had one to two in every class. Well, this year we had 14. And what we found was along all my experiences is that even though we were going into like a PWI that is known to be prestigiously white, 
even down to our professors had to adjust to us in the classroom because you increase the amount of minorities in the classroom. Our perspectives are so different that a lot of the times we found ourselves teaching our professors certain things, but it's not their fault that they were ignorant to certain things. It's just when you don't have a lot of black people in the class, you might not know you might be talking about slavery, but you don't know like who's going to tell you. Like your auditors are probably white. Why would they think of those things? And so there were some growing pains at Rice during our time there. However, like the staff, like Peter Rodriguez is like an amazing, I've never had a dean that I felt like cared and like Peter cared. And to be so openly available, like him, Dean Andrews, even from the student program office, Adam Herman, you could just tell that they cared and it just meant so much. And like that, one of those big things I'm going to always remember, like being at Rice. And I talked about that in my speech, being at that podium, getting elected by my classmates, how it's such a, a validating moment for me, because you, like, I feel like I've been seen. And it was just a, a very powerful moment at my time in B school. And I, I still hear about, my speech, like someone's like my, my, my classmate Jordan is like, yeah, my dad was like that girl who did that speech. She was right <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Tiki. I mean, it's just like, just a, a, a really cool perspective that's so important and so needed. And as you take that now from your rice experience, you've now charged into this like new four way for you of investment banking. What drew you to investment banking and how has been that transition so far, newly graduated and now kicking ass in this new different realm? In my black hip hop culture, whenever we are not adjusting well to something, we usually say it's ghetto right now. And that's what I've got to say. <laughs> Man, like while you're in business school, you're like in this like moment of bliss, like Money is not a factor, even though you have no job, <laughs> you know, like, but you're traveling the world, you're doing whatever you want. Like your time is really your time. And in that time, you forgot why you went to business school is because being an adult is ghetto. Like it sucks. <laughs> like, so to put it in, in, in layman's terms right now, adjusting to not, just putting banking aside. If you talk to any of my classmates right now, we are all like, damn, we can't go back to school again. Like, this is it. Like, this is it. <laughs> right. So I chose banking because, well, one, I wanted after the pandemic, right? Like the pandemic really like was shifting my mind. And I wanted, I didn't want the same thing that happened to me out of undergrad to happen to me in business school. Like, you know, like when you come out as a chemi in production engineering, it's like, that's the only job you can do now. Like, I can't like jump to something else. I have to jump to it within my own company first, and then I can migrate out. I was getting so tired. I wanted to go on the business side and Dow wouldn't let me do it. They kept wanting to keep me to being an engineer, which is fair, whatever. But for out of business school, I was like, I want to have a job where I have multiple options afterwards. And so in that, it's like, it's either consulting or it's banking. Cause I did not want to do industry. Like I didn't want to get stuck in an industry again. So it was really between consulting and banking. And so 
what honestly drove me to, to finance is that at the end of the day, since the beginning, I've always been a numbers girl. I know all levels of calculus, right? Like I've always been a numbers person. And so it just more so drove me more towards finance. I was still considering consulting, but I think the nail in the coffin was I did this. It was like a day in the life of an investment banker by this company called BrainSeek. And so they let me experience what it was like being an IB because what was keeping me from IB was the perception of it's an all white men. They do drugs to stay up. And they work too much. Like, that's all I knew. Like, in my head, I, I was literally thinking Leonardo DiCaprio and the Wolf of Wall Street. Like, that's what I was thinking IB was. And I was right. like, that's not my, that's not my MO. So we do this thing. <laughs> and I'm like, this is all these guys do. And this is how much money they make. Sign me up. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I was like, sign me up. Like, because I was so afraid. I was like, I thought it was so much harder than it was. And because I explored my questions that were keeping me from going there, I was yeah. like, I felt comfortable. So I started recruiting for it. Turns out after going through my whole business school experience, I made the right choice. I still think I made the right choice. And being a banker, like I'm one of the most sought out finance professionals of anyone because I know how to raise capital now. And cash is king as they teach you in, in business school, <laughs> right? So I'm super happy. I work for Citibank. Here in Houston, only work in clean energy transition. So anything that's with the clean energy transition, those are the type of deals my group does. And it's so funny because your chemical engineering, it comes in. <laughs> so I find myself with technology certain, risk. Right. Like um, even some of the companies, some of the things they're trying to do, like I've done them before. And so it's like it's so funny how things are kind of like coming back full circle. But investment banking is so hard. I'm not going to lie. I've been working, I think, almost three months now. And it's not only battling the whole I'm back to work, but also battling like, I think people sugarcoat this and I need this to be known for like a full-time MBA, especially for full-time MBAs, because the purpose of our program is to get a new job, you know, versus like executive program versus like the evenings. The value propositions are different for us. It's change your life, get the new job, right? But to be 31 years old and having to start over is such a humbling experience. Like I'm not an Excel guru. Like people put their proficient on Excel, you're lying. Like I'm learning new things that I never, that I feel like are so elementary. Like I should know how to shortcut in Excel and I didn't. And like trying to learn that and then be in a new space. Like, yes, I'm a chemical engineer. So I know a lot about downstream in oil and gas, right? But I don't know about hydrogen as a fuel source. I don't know about batteries. I don't know about solar, wind, nuclear. These are all verticals I hit now. So it's like I'm hit with learning new hard skills, but I'm also hit with learning like a little derivative off of what I know. And so it's so humbling and frustrating at the same time to be in that spot. And I just want people to know, like, it gets glamorized. Like, yes, you do get a new job. However, like, think about yourself. At 30 some years old, you want to feel like you know everything. <laughs> and to be back to where you were at 22, 23, straight out of undergrad, it's a humbling experience. It's, it's definitely turning the boys or girls into men and women, as they should say, you know. 
Takia, this has been amazing. As we wrap up, I just wanted to kind of ask, what's next? I mean, what do you have on the horizon? I mean, obviously you've got your hands full with new job, new career prospects and other things, but like, do you have any sort of things in the back of your mind that you're cooking on or thinking about like on the horizon that, that you might go and tackle next? My wheels have definitely been spinning. This is why I say getting an MBA is so like life transforming. Like now I know that anything I want is obtainable and it sounds so crazy, but you know, even in my office, like I, you know, network with people worth 50 million plus and it does not phase me anymore because I know it's obtainable. And so one of the things I am excited for is two big things in my head. One is, like I said, I, I just got engaged. Um, my fiance, Josh, proposed to me in Mykonos, Greece over the summer. So that was phenomenal. So I'm in the midst of, well, I'm not planning. We're hiring a wedding planner. Thank you, God. Um, <laughs> but the second thing I would say is, I don't know if people know, but I, I won an award from the Texas Business Hall of Fame. I won the Executive Leader Leadership of Distinction Award which is a brand new award. It's actually only granted to one MBA student in the entire state of Texas. And so I'm the first person to ever win this award and it's named after the CEO of AT&T, Randall Stevenson. They induct Texas legends every year. And this year it's, like I said, the type of people they've induct are billionaires who are generous with their wealth as in like they used it to make things better. For instance, um, one of the inductees is Paul Hobby, whose grandfather is William P. Hobby after the airport. There's a woman named Whitney. She was the youngest woman to ever IPO Bumble. These are like the people that will be there. Um, like last year, like Mark Cuban was inducted. So just going there to be around a caliber of people that I never thought I would ever I wouldn't say I never thought I'd be around, but to actually be 31 years of age and have that much access to millionaires and billionaires of Texas and be able to have that opportunity is, to me, it's like phenomenal. This is why I say I, I feel like I was supposed to be living here in Houston. There's just been so many things that have been happening to me. And so I'm excited for that to get to know people on a whole different like era. Like I... I'm super excited. That's what's on the horizon for me. I don't know what's going to come out of that. You never know. Like my job at City, I wasn't supposed to work at City. I thought I was going to work at Credit Suisse. And I met the head of the group at a Rice Scholarship Dinner and he gave me a job. Everything keeps happening to me here in such weird ways. So I'm just trying to absorb the blessings. Hopefully um, one of these days, who knows, maybe I can get a finance government position. I don't know, run the Bank of Texas. Who knows? Bank of Texas, have my own family office. Who knows? The world is my oyster at this point. And I, I honestly don't think it would have been like this if it wasn't for my experience at Rice. Like, I just feel like at this point, anything I want is obtainable. It's amazing. The ceiling is high. Texas legend in the making, Takia Green. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. Thanks for listening. This has been I'll Have You Know, a production of Rice Business. You can find more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe and leave a rating wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Scott Gale, and Maya Pomeroy.